0: Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined once again today by the esteemed illustrator and opera aficionado, Rosie Brooks. Welcome, Rosie. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Wonderful to have you. Well, we did one operetta already with The Merry Widow, and we have another operetta that you suggested that we do.
1: Yes, it's Orpheus in the Underworld by Offenbach.
0: Jacques Offenbach. He is... Known to a lot of regular opera goers as the composer of Tales of Hoffman, but that was really his only opera as opposed yeah. to the operettas.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think. And in this, there's one very, very famous piece.
0: Da, 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 okay, all right. Um, <laughs>
1: Just a and, little taste. And, the, and the rest of it is not as well known. It's, I, I think obviously in France, it's, it's quite a popular...
0: Yes, Orpheus aux Enfers.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Orpheus in the underworld. Well, I think we're going to leave it there and we're going to listen to some of this quite well known overture. That was the overture to Orpheus in the Underworld, L'Orphée aux Enfers, suggested to us by co-host Rosie Brooks. Rosie, that overture I know is quite famous because I've read it, but it wasn't familiar to my ears.
1: Yeah, I think it's a piece of music that's played independently of the opera quite a lot in the UK because I knew it, but I didn't know where it was from.
0: I think I could be wrong, but from what you're saying, this may be the case that it's played more in the UK than it is in the US.
1: Yeah, yeah, that sounds right.
0: Well, to that point, I've done a little research on the popularity of this opera, Orpheus in the Underworld, aside from the popular overture, which does get played independently, and of course that... (laughs) that, That that number, which appears more places than I can count. We will get to, it's towards the end, everyone, so don't hold your breaths, but this is quite a popular Opera in terms of worldwide productions. In the last decade, there have been 112 separate productions, 740 separate shows playing of this opera and those 112 productions. But if you look at the US and the UK, I found this astounding. Again, same time period at the last decade, there were seven different productions and it played 34 different times. Whereas in the United States, five productions, but it only played nine times.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: This explains the phenomenon that I had talking to you about this, where you were very much more familiar with this this show than I was, which I found interesting. Needless to say, it's popular in France as well, but not as popular as a couple of other Offenbach operettas.
1: Yeah, that is. As you said, The Tales of Hoffmann is Offenbach's probably most famous work, but actually... The can-can from this is the most famous piece, you know, in terms that he's known for. If, if you had to name a piece of music by him, then it would be the can-can from Orpheus in the Underworld, as opposed to the whole opera of Tales of Hoffman.
0: And I dare say that most people who would say, oh yeah, that's the can-can, don't have any idea who Jacques Offenbach might be, and that yeah. it fits, that it comes from a show. Yeah. It's just a, it, because the can-can is a style of music meant to accompany dancers that existed It's not simply this one song.
1: No, no, no.
0: But it's a style of music. But this is just an incredibly successful one. He wrote, I believe, over 100 operettas, which is amazing. This was what he did. He was very talented and very popular and very successful with it. But La Belle Hélène and La Vie Parisienne are two of his other often produced, to this day, operettas.
1: Yeah. And is Orpheus in the underworld the most famous operetta that he most popular
0: operetta it is worldwide but interestingly in france in the last decade there were more yeah. productions of la belle hélène and la vie parisienne and by the way a shout out and thank you to opera Base for helping me figure <laughs> out these details <laughs> yeah it's it's fascinating it's fascinating well let's look a little bit about how this was produced in the first place it was a, a passion of his to put on these light musical entertainments offenbach founded a theater called Théâtre des Bouffes Parisiennes in 1855. And that's right around the time that the French, under Napoleon III, are having their world exposition, which is in response to the great exhibition that took place in London,
1: yeah, and also, which is quite interesting in terms of operettas, that was where W. S. Gilbert discovered the Japanese embassy had a, a stand in the Great Exhibition, and that was where he discovered, according to the film *Topsy Turvy*, <laughs> um, <laughs> and got the inspiration for the Mikado.
0: Yes, so th- so this exhibition was. I mean, this is the one where the Crystal Palace first appears. This is during the reign of Queen Victoria and Albert and his efforts at modernization and bringing all these new ideas to light by having this great exposition. Well, the French weren't about to be entirely overshadowed by the English, and so they had their own exposition a couple of years later. Offenbach saw this opportunity. All the people seeing these exhibits are going to want some entertainment. And he provides... Interestingly, in Paris, the kind of theatre you had had to be regulated by law with what exactly you could present. Right. So he was able to open up this theatre, but he's limited in the number of
1: characters. Oh, not in terms of decency, just in terms of structure. No, in structure. Because in London, they had the Lord Chamberlain later. It was quite funny. There's buttons in theatres where the lord chamberlain button still it's still in a lot of the london's western theaters where if you press that i mean it's not still connected but if you press that the curtain comes down and lights go up
0: oh no that was that was the emergency break
1: yeah yeah it's like (laughs) (laughs) someone's taking their clothes off press press lord chamberlain's button and it's i mean it's disconnected but the buttons are all still there in a lot of the theaters it's quite fun
0: (laughs) no i didn't know that that's that's very funny yeah So no impresario could sneak in a little something titillating, could they? Well, at any rate, he opens this theater on the periphery of this great exhibition. And three years later in 1858 is when we have the premiere of Orpheus in the underworld. And it's not well received by the critics.
1: It's not well received by the critics. I didn't realise that it hadn't been well received by the critics because it seems so popular now. And he seemed at the height of his game when it was written.
0: Sometimes being not well received by the critics can be beneficial in terms of grabbing attention, notoriety, as it were.
1: Yeah. Was it popular with the public? Was it just the critics that were...
0: It becomes quite popular with the public and partly Mm. because... It was panned by the critics. One critic in particular, Jules Janin, wrote a violent attack of it in the Journal des Debats. Here's what he wrote. He said, Orpheus aux was a profanation of holy and glorious antiquity in a spirit of irreverence that bordered on blasphemy.
1: Oh. oh, so they didn't like them messing with the Orpheus myth?
0: No, and they didn't like the fact that Greek gods of antiquity were made fun of. And it's to me, it's Mm -hmm. fascinating that he uses this word blasphemy. I mean, France in the 19th century, a Catholic nation, if you're going to assign any sort of religious designation to it. But (laughs) he was so offended on behalf of the ancients and the reverence that should be accorded to them that he was just totally up in arms about it
1: I would have thought they were fair game I wouldn't have thought yeah
0: so did Offenbach (laughs) and his (laughs) librettists yeah Hector Jonathan Cremieux and Ludovic Alivet so this scathing review had the opposite effect than what he intended people didn't didn't think oh I don't want to see the Greek gods made fun of they thought yeah let's go see that
1: I suppose if a review says something's dull, you might think, well, I'll skip it. But if a review says something's shocking, you might think, oh, maybe. (laughs) That's
0: exactly what happened. It was wildly... I mean, this critic did more to help it than being silent. Just ignoring it would not have brought in the crowds. In fact, it became the thing. Have you seen Orpheus aux Enfers? Oh, I've seen it three times. I've seen it five times. It was wildly popular. And because of that huge popularity in Paris it becomes the, the show which really helps spread Offenbach's works beyond France. And it becomes popular in other European countries as well. Wow. So by the end of World War I, approximately 50 years later, Orpheus, aux Enfers, Orpheus in the Underworld had been given over a thousand times in Paris alone.
2: Wow.
0: Wildly popular, wildly successful. It's one of his best loved and it is still in the repertoire. It still is produced because it's fun. We all like to have fun, and this opera is. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the beginning of this show. We've heard a lovely overture.
1: So the curtain rises, and it it starts with Public Opinion, who explains that she is not just the chorus, like in a Greek chorus, but she actually does interfere with what's going on. Although she's not a main protagonist, she's the, the, the narrator, she also gets involved, and she's the moral guardian of the characters within the story and so she introduces herself.
0: We'll just get a little taste of what public opinion sounds like because she will return later in the show, as you say, to interfere with things.
2: Je
3: suis l'opinion publique, un personnage symbolique, ce qu'on appelle un raisonneur. Le courantique en confidence se chargé d'expliquer aux gens
0: Well, that was just a little sample of the character named Public Opinion in Orpheus in the Underworld by Jacques Offenbach. So, Rosie, once Public Opinion has set the stage, we open on the action of our characters. And who do we see first?
1: First, we see Eurydice, who is Orpheus's wife. But unlike in the myth and some other productions of Orpheus where they are deeply and passionately and completely in love. In this, not so much. They are... Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, very much t- tired of each other and quite openly looking elsewhere. Also, Orpheus himself is known to be not the figure that he is in, in the myth, in, for example, the Gluck. He's a violin teacher, isn't he, or a music teacher. And... She is very disgruntled about the fact that she's very bored of him and doesn't feel like he's lived up to the expectations. of.
0: Yes, and just just a little background here. When you mentioned the Gluck, should you want to hear uh, more about the Gluck Opera, episode 63 of Opera for Everyone, Patria and I talk about Glucks Orfeo e Uradici. Which was a wildly popular opera in the produced originally in seventeen seventy four and but remained popular through the nineteenth century and more recently, episode eighty five was one of the earliest ever operas, orfeo by Monteverdi, again, which treats the myth as best we know it from the different writers of antiquity. Offenbach, on the other hand, is just having a good time <laughs> making fun of these very familiar characters and the story. There is an assumption in this. Everyone knows the story, and they're ready to play.
1: The myth, exactly. My question is, are you going to do The Mask of Orpheus, which is Harrison Burt Whistle, and also Philip Glass did Orfe, which is the music for... It's the Jacques Cocteau film, isn't it? And he redid the music for it to fit onto the film. Well, go full uh, you know,
0: <laughs> we'll just have to see what comes next. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but in this particular version, it's this is probably the furthest away from their... Original character settings in the sense that they are disgruntled with each other so they actually want to part and yes. one is going off in one direction and one's in the other. So at this stage uh, Eurydice is waiting to go and meet her lover and then Orpheus comes on stage and he's wanting to meet his lover but they bump into each other and realise yes. <laughs> they've accidentally bumped into their, their own spouses and try and catch each other out and have a bit of a domestic. She's saying how disappointed
0: she is with him. Yes, well, if you know anything about Orpheus, you know that one of his great powers is his power to charm through his musical talents and his playing of the lyre or in this case it's a violin. But the fact that Eurydice finds the most annoying thing <laughs> about her husband to be his violin playing. I mean, you know right there you're you're ready to knock down all the norms of <laughs> Greek mythology and story. Yeah, she can't stand the violin. <laughs>
1: So they have their domestic, and then she says, "Well, why don't we separate then? If you know this, this is wonderful. We can just go our separate ways." And he points out he has a reputation to maintain. So she's stuck with him, and he's stuck with her. However, he warns, he throws a warning out, doesn't he? Saying, "Be careful where you go, because something might come a copper But he doesn't say what.
0: well let's hear a little bit from the two of them being completely fed up with each other but trying to negotiate their marital situation
3: It's adorable, it's invaluable, it's realising, it's good to know. Ah, ah,
2: ah, 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 It's a it's terrible. It's a it's It's a it's Expressive. <sweak> <sweak> <sweak>
0: Orpheus and Eurydice in Jacques Offenbach's Orpheus in the Underworld. And and this famously loving couple in antiquity, not so loving here in, in this <laughs> operetta version. <laughs> Rosie, they don't like each other.
1: <laughs> no, and they, they both referenced their that the other one has a lover, so they both openly know the other one is not faithful.
0: Right. Yes. She says, I have my shepherd and you have your shepherdess. Exactly. I leave her to you and you leave me my shepherd. But he's hes not going for that.
1: No, he, he, he well, not really. I was going to say thinly veiled, but it's not really thinly veiled. He makes a threat. Something might happen. And she construes that to mean something might happen to her lover. So she's worried for his safety, not thinking of her own. And <laughs> then she goes on to sing about her wonderful shepherd, who is due imminently but before he arrives there's a wonderful section where there's a a short ballet
0: one little exchange between the two of them that i'd like to highlight is because he's upset with her misbehavior the way he threatens her is by saying i've written my latest concerto for you i will play (laughs) it for you it only takes an hour and a quarter (laughs) and she is just (laughs) incensed she cannot stand his music only person in the history of recorded stories who doesn't love orpheus's music (laughs) his wife of course but Eurydice is afraid for the safety of her darling shepherd and she's already told us she's she's the daughter of a nymph she's someone special she's someone who if she chooses to bestow her her affections on a mere shepherd he's a special shepherd and someone she must take care of so there's the ballet that you mentioned and we're going to hear a little bit of that and then i think we're going to meet someone
1: well he claims to be the shepherd aristeas
0: yes and he's going to announce himself and tell us all about himself so a little bit of ballet a little bit of Aristeus, the shepherd do you see my air quotes when i do that <laughs> the shepherd <laughs>
3: D'Arcadia, un fabricant de miel, ivre de mélodie, sachant se contenter des plaisirs innocents que les dieux. La, ville, la bergère t'en dit carapanant. Le berger est le plus bel. Il a surbo, la, 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 la surbo la vient de la surbo. Voilà la fête, voilà la fête du bonheur. Le vrai bonheur, le vrai bonheur d'un tendre cœur.
0: To Opera for Everyone, and this is the operetta by Jacques Offenbach, Orpheus, aux Enfers, Orpheus in the Underworld. And we have met, speaking of the underworld, we have met <laughs> a shepherd who is the object of Eurydice's affections, but he might not be quite what he seems. Rosie, what, what does he tell us about himself in this song?
1: Well, he arrives and he sings about being a beekeeper, in fact, keeps bees and all about the bees, but there is a hint to the audience (laughs) that he may not be a simple shepherd. There might be more to the situation that meets the eye. It's not explicit, but it's definitely, there's a bit of a wink to the audience that Eurydice is not in possession of all of the facts, put it that way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he does tell us, um, who could know who I am? I might be up to some infernal project.
1: Ah, so there's a reference to...
0: A little hint if you're you're alert to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. But she thinks he's wonderful and she wants to go into the cornfield with him, but she's nervous because that's where the threat that Orpheus made.
0: Yes, she says, my husband knows all. He's spied on us and he's laid traps for you in the field. Don't go in. And does he mind her advice?
1: No, he says it's absolutely fine and, and frolics and says there's, there's nothing to worry about because she thinks that he's the one in danger. She follows him into the cornfield.
0: Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> and when she goes into the cornfield, do they frolic together? Momentarily,
1: possibly, but um, there's a shriek, I think, it, depending on the production. And again, depending on the production, whether you see a snake appear in a hand in a sock or whether or not it's just a figment of your imagination, she's bitten by a snake mortally wounded and at this point she realizes she's dead.
0: Yes and at this point Aristeus throws off his shepherd's costume. Yes. And he becomes himself again Pluto, god of the underworld.
1: So it was a trap all along. Uh, He's going to take her down to the underworld and this is where she writes a letter to Orpheus to explain that she's dead and is going to the underworld with Pluto.
0: Right and there's there's an implication there that she's not writing this all of her own free will it's being directed Mm -hmm. by pluto Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and they deliver it to orpheus and in all of this in her death she sings this lovely song interestingly death comes to me smiling yeah because it's made very clear to her she gets to continue being with this new lover once she's died Well, we've just heard the dying song, uh, a a staple of opera, really, the dying song of Eurydice. But of course, this being Orpheus in the underworld, Jacques Offenbach's operetta, just because she's died doesn't mean Eurydice is not going to be a character anymore. (laughs) We're going to meet her down in hell later. But meanwhile, back on Earth, Orpheus has returned home.
1: To find a letter. The letter. She explains that what's happened, that she's
0: been bitten by a snake and that she's dead. Yes, it's wonderful. How can she be dead? Then he says, well, she must be dead when she says so herself. One of my favorite lines in the <laughs> operetta. She tells me she's dead. It must be true. And so it is true. <laughs> she is dead.
1: He's thrilled because it sorts out all his problems, is not it? it? It's a very neat conclusion to the situation and he's not very subtle about it. And all's well that ends well, but then public opinion gets involved and explains that he has a moral duty to chase after her and retrieve her because she is still his wife.
0: Yes, public opinion will not stand for him celebrating the death of his wife. He must do everything he possibly can to go get her. So instead of seeing Orpheus as this person who who comes up with this great plan and braves untold dangers, it's really just expected of him by public opinion. In this rendition.
1: Yeah, everything he does that seems to be due to moral fibre is just because he's bullied by another character. Yes. <laughs>
0: with with the fabulous name of public opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so let's hear a little bit about him celebrating his freedom, and then the celebration is cut short by public opinion setting him straight. <laughs>
3: Si elle l'opinion publique, si elle l'opinion, l'opinion publique, qui m'a poursuivi, qui m'a poursuite jamais l'échange. C'est l'opinion publique, quel proclame ce qu'elle fait qui peut.
0: public opinion, deciding that Orpheus needed to go and seek his wife because public opinion demands it. And he doesn't initially go to the underworld to seek her. He's going to end up going to Mount Olympus to the greatest of the gods to beg for his wife's return with public opinion hounding him all the way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, though, Rosie, I have discovered that if you want to find a libretto and a version of this to watch, those things aren't necessarily, unless they're produced together, they aren't necessarily going to link up. Yeah,
1: there doesn't seem to be a definitive version, whereas with some operas, there are absolute orders of the works and you know, there are certain phrases that are always included, whereas this does seem to be something that's messed around with quite a lot.
0: It's interesting. So we mentioned that this premiered in 1858 at this Théâtre des Bouffes Parisiens. And became very, very popular. And Offenbach himself reworked the entire show for a larger venue, the Théâtre de Gaëté. And so he makes a, a much larger production. And the first version was a four-act version, for shorter acts. This second version in 1874 is a two-act version, but he beefs it up with a couple of more characters, and he adds two ballets, and what seems to have happened as best i can tell is that most productions will be based on the original version the 1858 version and then they'll supplement it with some of the items that offenbach added in 1874 but not all of the items yeah okay so so it can it can be confusing because the the different productions can pick and choose what things they want to add in. Like you say, there's not a definitive score and way of presenting it, but it's it's all going to be Offenbach and his work.
1: And there are a lot of characters, aren't they? I mean, compared to some operas where there can be like, I don't know, five or six, there's there's a good 12 on the list if you go full in yeah. terms of all of them. If you include all the gods, there's, there are a lot of names.
0: Well, that's where we're headed next. We're headed up to Olympus. But let's, let's hear just a tiny bit of this end of the first act or the end of the first tableau, as it's sometimes called, of the four tableaus. So different settings, really. So we're going to say goodbye to Earth at this point. Goodbye, Earth. <laughs> and public opinion and Orpheus are on their way.
3: I call the Spanish tour. I say guide, tour, Spanish village tour, Spanish village tour, Spanish village
2: tour, Spanish village tour, Spanish village tour, Spanish
3: village tour, Spanish La mira cura tu 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 la mira
2: cura tu la mira 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 la 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 la
0: Opera for everyone, and we are listening to Orpheus, aux Enfers, Orpheus in the Underworld by Jacques Offenbach. And we have left the earth, and we are now on Mount Olympus with all the great Greek gods. And when we first join them on Mount Olympus, they're very sleepy, these gods. <laughs> they're all just reclining and saying, Let us sleep. Apart from two, which is Venus and Cupid who creep in
1: quietly and join the other gods sleeping so they're not caught out about what they've been up to overnight.
0: Oh, the goddess of love and her little helper. They Mm -hmm. may have been up to some mischief, perhaps.
1: (laughs) The operatic equivalent of, what is it, the Walk of Shame?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, except everyone else is asleep, so yeah. it doesn't matter so much. Wow. Well, let's, let's hear a little bit of the sleepy choir of the gods and Venus and Cupid sneaking in, and then we'll find out more of the goings-on of Mount Olympus.
2: You're not going to do
0: the gods on the great Mount Olympus in this not entirely serious take of the (laughs) gods. Jacques Offenbach's Orpheus aux Enfers. Well, we're not in the underworld yet. We are on Mount Olympus.
1: And all the gods are snoozing. Venus and Cupid having crept in and joined all the other gods until Mm. Diana. Diana's a god of chastity. Ironically, she blows her horn, which wakes up all the other gods and Jupiter is furious because Diana is the god of chastity but she hasn't necessarily been that chaste <laughs> and she has a, she has a lover. She's also
0: the huntress. So she's we connect yeah. her with the the I I mean I'm thinking of that gorgeous painting I believe it's in the yeah. National Gallery in London of Diana out and she's seen bathing. And yeah. there's a stag nearby. Uh-huh. And that somehow figures into this story, I believe.
1: Well, as penance for not being as chaste as she ought to be, Jupiter turns her lover into a stag, <laughs> and she's furious.
0: <laughs> In this version. In
1: this version, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely furious. Cla- <pissed.
0: laughs> Classically, she is upset that someone has seen her bathing, yes, looking at her lustfully, perhaps, <laughs> and she turns that someone into a stag. Mm-hmm. As punishment. So this turns that story on its head. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that it's a punishment for her. And it's Jupiter that delivers this.
0: And she's none too pleased with her father about turning this man into a stag and stopping her fun.
1: Yeah. And then all the other gods wake up and they all sort of get involved. They, They all pile on Jupiter a bit, actually. I think he suddenly becomes the one that they're...
0: He's the wet blanket,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want to have fun and he's stopping everyone's fun. Well,
0: he says, we have to keep up appearances, we gods. The honor of mythology is at stake. So, I mean, they're just having a lot of fun poking holes in mythology.
1: Yeah. Well, his wife is none too pleased because his his wife thinks that he is up to no good, is continually suspicious with good reason. And his children are just cross because he won't let them do what they want. He's definitely the least popular at the party that way.
0: Right. They say, oh, he's a real bore. (laughs) And they say, Olympia is smothering me with its implacable azure little too much paradise, it sounds like.
1: <laughs> Juno, his wife, accuses him of infidelity, and he pretends to be outraged. And then I think Mars gets involved, and Mars gets the blame, and it all goes around in circles, and Jupiter basically gets away with it this time.
0: Yes, but Juno has a name, and he, she throws it out, because we all know, of course, that Jupiter is engaged in many infidelities. But Juno, his wife, throws out the name Eurydice, I understand she was abducted by a god and you must be that god.
1: But Jupiter denies it because it actually isn't him on this particular occasion.
0: (laughs) Just this time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) But this is when Mercury appears. Mercury has brought the news that a mortal has been captured and is currently in the underworld, which is what leads Juno to the suspicion and Jupiter to deny it.
0: Well, with Mercury's arrival... Offenbach saw another opportunity for a wonderful song, and this is one of those songs that was added in the second rendition, the 74 rendition, and it's often picked up by companies wanting to produce this operetta because it's such a fun song, with Mercury's arrival, Eh Hop, a eh Hop.
3: J'y appelle les gens, au cas tu sais ma médaille, une médaille en livre, et hop, et hop, la sable, le cure, c'est bien, ne touche pas le sol, à bleu nuage, ça veut dire rien, ne l'arrête dans son ventre, et hop, et hop, la sable, le cure, c'est bien, ne touche pas le sol, à bleu nuage, ça veut dire rien, ne l'arrête dans son ventre, je suis le Dieu de l'île l'éloquence, des avocats sont les ils me sont à ce Martel de Toi comme le dieu du commerce Il déteste Il a fraudé le don Et je sais pas raison Inverser les ennemis Comme le dieu du vote Car j'ai la main fort indirecte Et quelquefois Le bras courant Quand il était berger D'admettre J'ai chipé les peu d'abourons Tout en étant le dieu des droits Je suis le plus droit Le dieux. J'ai des selles Sur les épaules Au talon Et dans les cheveux J'ai pas mon maître C'est le maître A toute source Il finira Par me maître Par me maître Dans sa mort Oh maître Pour savoir savoir le temps qu'il fera savoir le temps qu'il fera hop 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 Et hop et hop et hop et hop et hop et hop hop
2: et hop 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 et hop 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 et hop hop
0: This is Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to Jacques Offenbach's Orpheus in the Underworld. But we're not in the Underworld at the moment. We're on Mount Olympus, and we've just heard from Mercury having fun with his song. And we're about to meet a key character again, but not in the guise of a shepherd. We're going to meet Pluto, come up to Mount Olympus.
1: Pluto makes his entrance and he announces that he's captured Eurydice, this beautiful woman. And Jupiter's secretly quite jealous, but he pretends to be outraged.
0: (laughs) Yes, as he is, after all, the one who's trying to uphold the dignity of mythology. Exactly. Consider what happened with Diana.
1: (laughs) All the other gods are just appalled, as they always are, with his behavior.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they are. And Pluto just enjoys seeing Jupiter diminished in the eyes of the other gods.
1: So Pluto sings his song which is Happy Divinities, which is introducing his his take on life, isn't it really?
0: Yes. And <laughs> he's he's quite happy to make fun of all the other gods because he thinks they're just a little too full of themselves. <laughs>
3: Sous des cieux toujours bleus Tandis que je suis condamné au sombre clore A que des royaumes, des royaumes infernales Ici si nous respire une odeur de déesse et de noix Une suave odeur de, de mire et De nectar et d'or en On attend le roucoulement des colombes, des colombes, les chansons d'Apollon et la lyre de l'Espos, la lire de l'Espos. Voici les narraves, voici les muses, les grâces, les grâces, les grâces ne sont pas loin, non. ne sont pas loin, les dans dansés, calmes et bondissantes. au se gratte de la lune, 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 de la chansons de la lune, la lune, de la la lune, de la lune, de
0: Pluto has just made fun of all the Olympian gods on his visit up there. And the other gods are not upset with Pluto, except Jupiter, of course.
1: And the other gods are upset with Jupiter, because... They've had enough of how tranquil and wonderful Mount Olympus is. They've got bored. There's nothing to, there's no entertainment.
0: And even when his wife has gone off earlier to have a bite to eat, it's like, oh, nectar and ambrosia again. <laughs> and they all grumble at, at the thought of nectar and ambrosia. And Pluto stirred up some trouble. He's fomented rebellion. Uh-huh. Not an entirely unfamiliar Concept to the French at this point in the 19th century. They've seen a few rebellions, a few revolts, yeah. revolutions over the years.
1: Of course, thinking of the historical context and the characters that might be being lampooned. Yes.
0: Yeah. So let's hear this rousing choral call to arms, aux armes, aux armes, as they revolt against Jupiter and his blissful heaven.
3: Parlez-moi de ceci, de ceci, camarade
0: gods are in open rebellion against jupiter here they are calling to arms to arms
1: it's now at a stage where they're all getting involved and they've decided not just to attack his his thought processes and everything but they're going for the jugular they're actually going for his appearance saying not only is he not the moral character he claims to be but also were it for want of trying, there's, there's reasons why he wouldn't necessarily be appreciated in his current form, so he has to change himself into various different, <laughs> more
0: desirable characters. You're, to... <laughs> you are much too kind. They call him ugly. Yeah, <laughs> they say, Jupiter, you're ugly. <laughs> the only way you can seduce a woman is to change your form. Thank goodness yeah. for you, you're a god and you can. Don't talk to us about propriety and morality and trying to uphold the dignity of mythology. You're a mess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ha ha ha! <laughs> I think this is my favourite track. <laughs>
2: Ne pouvait pas de la les défausse-jubins? Ne pas jubins Et c'est de la même enveloppe que tu te servis de nouveau lorsque pour enlever Europe tu pris les cornes de taureau? Ne pouvait pas de encore les défausse-jubins? Ha Ne pouvait pas de encore les défausse-jubins?
3: C'est que tu te trouves si laid que pour te faire aimer, tu n'oses te montrer très très longtemps. Ne
2: manquez la de la rote, on est des fesses, j'ai pas. Ne manquez la pente de la rote, on est j'ai pas.
0: To Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host, Rosie Brooks. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I am still here with Rosie Brooks. Hey, Rosie. Hiya. (laughs) Hiya. So glad you're here. Hey, what did you think about that song we played at the end of part one?
1: That's my favorite one from the whole operetta, I think.
0: <laughs> it's just, it's one of those ones that sends you out humming. I mean, we're not ready. We're not quite at the end of, of the first act or the second tableau, as, as it might be referred to. But it's its a cheerful, bouncy song and just fun because it's fomenting rebellion against Jupiter. <laughs> Well, this is the time of the show when we want to make sure to thank the people involved in the production of the CD that we're listening to today. This is a 1997 recording of the orchestra and chorus of the Opera of Lyon. Conductor Mark Minkowski. and Eurydice is sung by the wonderful Natalie Desai, Orpheus by Jan Buron. Pluto, Aristaeus, is Jean-Paul Fouchekoult, Jupiter sung by Laurent Noray, Public Opinion by Eva Pudlesh. Venus is sung by Veronique Jean and Cupid Patricia Pettibon. So thank you to those artists as well as everyone else involved in the production of this gorgeous music that we've been listening to. And speaking of people who were involved in the creation of this, I want to just circle back and talk a little bit about the librettists for this. It was the duo of Hector Jonathan Crémieux and Ludovic Alévé. Alévé and Crémieux together worked on a number of operettas for Offenbach, I think five that they collaborated on. But interesting, Alévé's most frequent collaborator on operettas for Offenbach was Henri Meillac. So Aleve and Meillac, a formidable duo writing librettos.
1: Were they the, also the librettists that worked with Bizet for Carmen?
0: That is the duo, indeed. They wrote together ten or so operettas for Offenbach, but probably if you've heard of the duo of Aleve et it is for Bizet's Carmen, so you're right about that.
1: So it would have been around the 1860s and 70s, this is in Paris?
0: Yes, Carmen was 1875 for its premiere, so... Right in that time period of Offenbach's popularity, Carmen, of course, was Bizet's last opera, but both of these two writers were incredibly enmeshed in the Parisian world of opera and operetta and very prolific. And speaking of operetta, on our last collaboration, Rosie, we did The Merry Widow, also an operetta, and we talked a little bit about the art form, operetta. Could you remind us what an operetta is as opposed to an opera?
1: I think it's understood... Sort of in layman's terms, to be uh, opera light, that it's it's more likely it's it's smaller and less epic, and it t- they tend to be comedies. It's, it, it's they're they're more lighter in subject matter and they're more accessible in in terms of the music and the plot. They tend to be sillier, I think.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, would you like to know that in the universal lexicon of 1837, which defines operetta, arguably before operetta is recognized as a major art form, it says essentially what you just said. So, well done. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, lighter. And not dealing so much with the high-status characters, or not dealing as often with high-status yeah. characters, more daily life. Of course, Yeah. as he breaks so many rules with Orpheus aux Enfers, Offenbach does take on high-status characters, but he doesn't treat them in a respectful and high-status sort of manner.
1: Exactly. And with some of the Gilbert and Sullivan, the same, that they use... Like in Iolanthia, there's fairies, but the, the, they're actually representing different characters that it's all symbolic of, of other things, which is much more in the day-to-day.
0: Yeah, exactly. It, it, well, forgive the pun, but it brings them down to earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the era of the operetta and its great popularity spans approximately the 80-year period between 1855 and 1935. Yeah. 1855 being that year... And it is it is on the occasion of Offenbach opening that first theatre. And that is that is considered to be the beginning point of... Of Operetta, right. So it exists before, but becomes wildly popular.
1: And it sort of waned in the 30s, so it would have been the late Gilbert Sullivan's that were probably the last ones then, I would have thought, because they were... 1910s, 20s, I think.
0: Well, and and the reason that 1935 is seen as an endpoint for Operetta is because in the German-speaking countries, I mean, that's a difficult time for the German-speaking Jews who were being suppressed by the Nazis. And uh, they're not allowed to continue their work. And that's seen as the closure of that period of time of these two great eras of Operetta.
1: And film, cinema coming in must have... Also, well, it, yeah, tremendously
0: off. Tremendous impact on the arts, but but that's a topic for a different venue. <laughs> I think <laughs> we we can return to Offenbach, and just a, a mention about his theater. I, I think I brought up the subject earlier about the fact that when Offenbach first opens his theater in Paris on the periphery of the Great Parisian Exhibition of 1855, he's limited because you had to get a particular license for your opera house. That performing license would limit the number of characters you could have in your shows.
1: Would it mean that it had to be a certain number less or
0: more? It set an upper limit.
1: Upper limit, right.
0: So when he first got his license and all of his early operas, he could only have three singing characters. And for an extra fee, he could add a fourth character, but they couldn't sing.
1: Wow, Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's some that's some real government regulation. <laughs>
1: yeah, cuz there's there's loads of characters in uh, office in the underworld. There's there's like about 15, aren't there?
0: Well, two answers. Orpheus in the Underworld opens 3 years after the theater in 1858. And by this point, Offenbach had gained a very important fan and supporter, none other than Louis Napoleon, head of state. And because Louis Napoleon was a big fan, he was granted an exemption and allowed to have more characters on his stage, and he really took it. Def- and he did. <laughs> it, it's part of why Orpheus aux Enfers could be the breakout hit that it was for Offenbach because it was not just a small little production; it could be a much bigger yeah. production. So there's there's a lot of things that go into it uh, aside from the quality of the work itself and then the, the notoriety from the bad reviews and the interest in all of that, but, but also official government support allowing him to have a, a larger production, which was phenomenal for him, made all the difference. Also, in the period after Orpheus in the Underworld is presented, 1858 to 1870, Vienna, a city well known for great success with operettas, Offenbach had 46 different shows produced in Vienna, during just over 10 years. Amazing. He was utterly successful in the capitals that mattered in Europe. And arguably, his success in Vienna is part of what kicks off the second wave, this silver age of operettas, where people like Lehar and the Merry Widow could really kick off this second great age of operettas. Okay, enough history. I'd like to say we get back to our story, but I can't disappoint People who look forward to the opera helmet quiz. You know, I left that out of one of our shows and, and I heard about it. Boy, did I hear about it. So I can't leave it out again. <laughs> do you do you want to do a quick summation of our plot thus far, Rosie?
1: <gasps> okay, yes. So we are currently on Mount Olympus. But if I rewind back to the beginning, we start the operetta with public opinion, who explains that she's the moral guardian of the characters and the plot. Eurydice arrives and talks about how she's looking forward to seeing her lover. But she's Eurydice is actually married to Orpheus unhappily. Orpheus turns up, <laughs> going to meet his lover. They bump into each other and are really disappointed that it's actually their own spouses. And they discuss the fact that, that basically they hate each other. Yeah. He doesn't want a divorce because it would ruin his reputation. So that's that's that Uh, and he warns her that if she tries any anything then something terrible will happen she intimates from that that the terrible thing is going to happen to her lover but unfortunately when she meets her lover who she thinks is a shepherd in the cornfield she's bitten by a snake because actually the snake was meant for her the shepherd turns out to be pluto god of the underworld and (laughs) descends them down to hell and that's the end of scene one. Is that right? Yeah, I think. And then... That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah,
0: and, then yeah. what, and then where do we go and what happens?
1: Then we move to mount, the top of Mount Olympus and all the gods are asleep. And Venus and Cupid creep in, having spent the night elsewhere, and pretend to be asleep <laughs> as well. And then Diana comes in and Diana, who is normally known to be chased and... Yes, famously so. In, In this, not so much. Jupiter comes in and tells her that he's turned her lover into a stag
0: and she's really annoyed. Turning that myth on its head, yes. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And then all the gods turn on Jupiter because life is so boring and they don't want to have nectar and ambrosia anymore. And that's sort of, I think, where we're up to, isn't it? And they all call him ugly as well and say that he he couldn't get anyone unless he turned himself into something different.
0: Yeah, and we have a little more marital bickering with Juno and Jupiter at each other just to carry on the idea that these married couples are are not getting along. But Jupiter says a thing similar to what Orpheus says about keeping up appearances. Just as Orpheus is concerned about public opinion, Jupiter has his own concerns about keeping up appearances.
1: Yes, he has to maintain good moral fiber amongst the gods, the goddesses
0: which could be seen as a slight dig at the head of state, who is in fact supportive of Offenbach, because that's often what he was accused of, Louis-Napoleon, that appearances were all. So right. we'll just tuck that one away.
2: <laughs>
0: well, we're still on Mount Olympus. We're not quite done there. We have a little bit more because onto the scene, one of our major characters approaches.
1: Obviously. Public opinion and Orpheus arrive on Mount Olympus and all the gods are rather thrilled, especially Orpheus because he's this handsome young gentleman. So all the the goddesses, all of a Twitter.
0: They lose sight of their rebellious thoughts and focus on him. Yes,
1: yes. And so public opinion explains the dilemma that Orpheus is in. And Jupiter says he'll go down to the underworld and sort everything out.
0: I know it's insane that we're sending the king of the gods from Olympus down into Hades.
1: And that's the end of Act One.
0: Well, yes. And let's talk a little bit about the music here and how Offenbach is going to finish off the middle of the show here as this second tableau concludes. The song of all the gods getting all excited when Orpheus is on the way. He approaches, he advances, is fascinating because once he is on the scene, there's a little bit of the song And I think I'll stop right when it happens. We'll hear the gods being excited. And then we're going to hear this song where he plays on his violin. And he lets us know how much he's missing his wife. Because that's what he's supposed to do. Public opinion is put him up to it. And do you know how it's going to be really convincing that he really misses his wife? She's
1: playing the violin.
0: Yes, he's playing the violin. And it's really serious because he's going to play a little bit of gluck's music
1: ah that's it isn't it <laughs> yes so he references a more serious and more earnest relationship between Orpheus and Eurydice implying that theirs is like those in the gluck
0: <laughs> exactly and, and to the audience this would be well known music likely they would understand that Offenbach was taking a little snatch of gluck's music just because it's so fun you know it's part of the parody it's part of the fun yeah. So we'll play the gods awaiting the entrance of Orpheus and his faux sincere missing of his wife, and then we're going to play just a little bit of the Gluck original, so you can have some fun with that yourselves if it's not familiar to you.
3: Ennuye, riz, riz, riz,
2: riz, se
3: Oh, <laughs>
1: Of the Gluck, so we can compare it. I think for the sadness of Orpheus's character, so it shows how earnest his feelings are, and how Offenbach has used that in Orpheus in the Underworld.
0: And that's Gluck's "Che Senza Euridice." Forgive my Italian pronunciation. <laughs> We've heard Orpheus tell us how sincere he is about missing his wife and wishing she could come back. And much to everyone's surprise, Jupiter vows to get her back.
1: And Jupiter says that he will go down to the underworld and sort everything out because enough is enough. And all the other gods say, well, if he's going, they're all coming with him.
0: Yeah. So in a way, they've succeeded in their rebellion. They get to leave (laughs) the nectar and ambrosia behind and the boring, sleepy Mount Olympus and get a taste of hades Uh uh-huh well we get a rousing finish to this second tableau the end of act one with them all singing in praise of jupiter because they're happy with him now and they're also excited singing no more nectar no more blue skies and now we're going to laugh a little bit thanks joopy listening to Opera for Everyone and we are in the middle of Jacques Offenbach's Orpheus Orpheus in the Underworld and we are in fact now finally in the Underworld with this third tableau in the operetta. Rosie, I notice in the libretto, it tells us we're in the boudoir of Pluton, but he's not there.
1: No, he's got Eurydice locked in as prisoner. He's somewhere else, and she's trapped with her jailer, John Styx, who has to keep her entrapped.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's a reasonable chance that she's going to let us know how unhappy she is with the situation. <laughs> <laughs>
2: i le going go me the city que
0: She sure is unhappy there waiting for Pluto in the bedroom in fact she even says if this keeps up I will regret having left my husband she doesn't regret it yet but if it keeps
1: <laughs> up she will in the song she doesn't seem to be particularly distressed that she's in prison more bored isn't it that she's she's sort of oh, um, how irritating the situation is I've got nothing to do and then yeah. John Sticks arrives and he's slightly unsavory in appearance and probably aroma and she's disgusted by him
0: (laughs) yeah that's the jailer she has to hang out with
1: (laughs) but he's besotted by her and thinks she's wonderful and he can't understand he also mentions he might have a little bit of a problem with um with drink
0: (laughs) yeah and we believe him (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) he wasn't always a servant was he
1: no, he goes on to explain that he was once a king of Boeotia, presumably before he ended up in the underworld, and should be treated as such. Although Boeotia is actually another in-joke, because it's supposed to be synonymous with country bumpkins, so he doesn't really get a break at all. And Eurydice just finds him disgusting and irritating.
0: Yes, she does. Poor, poor Eurydice. Poor John Sticks. I mean, I love the fact that we don't have the river Sticks; We have John Sticks standing in for... <laughs> <laughs> well... It's a great song that he gets to sing. He doesn't have a big role in this show, but it is a fun song.
3: Et pourtant, malgré les envies, ce que je regrette ce jour, c'est de ne pas choisi pour te donner tout nom. Quand je aussi, quand je T'offrir la puissance de roi. La plus belle ombre de ma chérie ne peut donner que ce terrain. Accepte donc, je t'en supplie, dans l'enveloppe de moi. Le que de roi de négocier, le que de roi de négocier.
0: As nice as the song was, I don't think John Styx is going to make any headway with Eurydice there in Pluto's boudoir. (laughs) So she's there and she's continuing to be unhappy with her lecherous jailer. But he leaves the scene a little bit and there she is being miserable.
1: Yeah, miserable, bored and alone. And what she doesn't realize is that Jupiter is now in the vicinity Mm. with Cupid, who has agreed to help him make him more attractive by turning into a fly.
0: Intriguing li- that that's how you not- make it more attractive.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. one of the reasons turning into a fly would be helpful. It means he can buzz through the lock. So he's uh-huh. small enough to make his way into
0: her boudoir and prison cell. And not be seen by the watchful jailer.
1: And this is when Eurydice, who is bored and looking for company and attention, says so she feels a brush on her shoulder and what can it be and then she realizes it's a extremely attractive fly
0: she says what a beautiful fly how beautifully it hums she is a lonely woman <laughs> <laughs>
3: Il s'agit de jouer mon rôle plus amoureux, car dès ce moment, je l'ai droit qu'on bourdonne moi. Je l'ai droit qu'on bourdonne moi. La chanson la, couche. Chanson, 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 ma chanson. la chanson la touche,
2: chanteau chanteau ma chanson. À la touche, ma chanson. La touche, chanteau ma بال- chanson. Ah, la belle mouche, le joli fredon. Bail- belle a- c'est elle le doré. Tu restes mon compagnon. <muches> C'est l'lieu dont tu forces l'entrée, et me serve le prison. <muches> ne me quittes pas, je t'en prie. Reste en bien de la biensoir de toi. Oh, je t'aimerai, moche génie. Reste avec moi, reste avec moi, je te. I <laughs>
3: La j'ai pris des ailes, ma charmante, ma la méchante,
2: méchante, J'ai pris des ailes, ma charmante, le J'ai le De le, le, le le, le. cette
3: The brise, the plus brise, the plus la prise plus brise, the plus brise, the Chante, chante, chante,
2: chante. chante, chante. chante. chante.
0: Well, Eurydice has a good friend in that fly, doesn't she? (laughs) (laughs) But
1: she seems more upset when she finds out he's not a fly and that he's Jupiter, a god.
0: Yes, he does reveal himself as the god. I mean, I feel like this whole scene is confirming what the other gods accuse Jupiter of, which is that he's more attractive when he's transformed into a blue bottle from his real self. (laughs) (laughs) but she will be consoled she was bored and she's not bored anymore so that's something
1: (laughs) and he promises now he says that he's going to take her to mount olympus but she has to go to a party first yes and she she falls for this she's like yeah that's fine
0: yeah anything i'm bored i mean mount olympus sure she doesn't realize all the gods are bored with it and a party of course that sounds super fun But before Eurydice goes to the party, we have this lovely number where you get a bunch of the flies who are similar to Jupiter, but we have a little dance of the flies in all of their joyous excitement. down in hades with orpheus in the underworld but it's not just orpheus there eurydice there we've got a bunch of flies there we've got all the gods from olympus there and we've just had a little dance but we're not even at the party yet
1: so in the flies dance there is, it is it's the gallop there's a there's a reference to the famous song that is about to appear as a little little taster
0: yeah we're 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 getting ready for this Mm -hmm. infernal gallop, which will be part of our party. And Eurydice loves a good party. So as we open into the party scene, of course, the host of the party is the king of the underworld himself, Pluton. Pluto. Everyone sings in praise of Pluto. And his hospitality. In contrast to them singing in praise to Jupiter. Yeah, it turns out. Pluto's a better host. (laughs) His parties are more fun. That's more (laughs) lively. That's for sure. (laughs) Interesting for the god of the dead. But they are. And they say, long live the wine and long live Pluto. for everyone, and we are at a rockin' party down in Hades with Pluto in charge, and Eurydice on the scene, and she loves a good party.
1: And also, it's the deal, isn't it, that Jupiter said you just have to come to this party, and then you can end up in Mount Olympus, but you have to be in disguise, and the disguise is as a lady of Bacchus, or Bac-Aunt. a bacchant,
0: A <laughs> Bacchante. Well, yeah. she jumps at the chance to get out and have some fun and sure she'll dress up however he wants her to dress up and she's ready to go with him And she just she's happy to be away from her husband still (laughs) even if it's in hell or if it's up on mount olympus and she sings about how she's seen the god bacchus and he inspires me i feel in my heart his sweet delirium and you think okay she's really living that life she
2: vu le my se do
0: Eurydice and all the other partiers singing their praises to Bacchus and enjoying themselves wholeheartedly, with all the gods in Olympus joining in. But at this point,
1: Jupiter says, Well, hang on a minute, they're gods, they ought to behave themselves. So, he says, <laughs> appearances
0: order- matter.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, in order to calm things down a little bit and show that they all do have decorum, they are to dance a minuet.
0: Of course, that very refined stately dance. Someone interested in appearances might suggest a minuet. And do they dance a minuet?
1: They do. It's not all they dance, but they do dance a minuet to start with.
3: (laughs) Que je n'ai pas reconnu la vacante, mais j'ai l'œil sur eux.
0: never been so charming or so the characters on stage all say it's never been so charming as when jupiter dances it but honestly the characters who are on stage that we've met the olympian gods pluto eurydice none of them are joining in the minuet it's a little too stately a little too boring for them jupiter's having a good time being in charge and having everyone praise him but it's not the end of the party yet
1: But this is the point the party really gets started, the moment they've all been waiting for. And the most famous piece in the whole opera. Possibly the most famous piece Offenbach performed and one of the most famous pieces of classical music per se.
0: Yes, although I think a lot of people hearing it wouldn't call it classical music. They just think it's (laughs) the can-can. Although the style of dance known as the can-can does predate this. This becomes the most famous music associated with the dance can-can. But it's not known as the Can Can in this show.
1: No, in Orpheus in the Underworld, it's called the Infernal
0: Gallop. Yes. The Infernal Gallop. I mean, that's a wonderful name, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You introduced me to that name. We, We were talking earlier about the fact that this is a much more popular show in the UK than in the US. And I wasn't familiar with this song being called the Infernal Gallop. Good to know. And it's a very well-known song, used in advertisements, used in other films. In fact, when I mentioned this to someone not too long ago, and, and and I was explaining what this song was, he cut me off and says, well, I've seen Moulin Rouge. And of course, this song features prominently in Moulin Rouge with its own words and own interpretation
1: the music is often used and then people put their own lyrics on top including a version i know which is all the stations in the london underground
0: all the stations in the london underground
1: yeah it starts left to right i think it goes around in a circle so you can use it
0: for navigational purposes yeah exactly <laughs> okay well that is something for us to check out later <laughs> <or> <laughs> next time i get to london <laughs> well let's hear it in context in orpheus in the Underworld. that music. (laughs) And it's so fun to know where it truly comes from. But it is loved and embraced. And for any possible implicit criticism, Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III, he loves this music and holds no grudges against Offenbach. Offenbach continues to be incredibly important and successful in Paris. Meanwhile, back at this infernal party, it's not going to keep on with the crazy dancing. We've got Jupiter and Pluto, who both have shown an interest in the lovely Eurydice.
1: Yeah, so at this point they're fighting over her and you don't know which way it's going to go, but then she hears the familiar sound of her husband's violin.
0: Oh no, she thought that she'd (laughs) left that home behind her, the violin.
1: (laughs) He's back and so is the violin. (laughs) Oh, and she's none too pleased. Mm -mm. Orpheus, he arrives with public opinion, who is pressurizing him to do the right thing, because he's not necessarily inclined to do it of his own accord. And his position there is to rescue his wife. Like
0: it or not, he's got a her.
1: <laughs> he's got to rescue her and take her back to Earth. And Jupiter
0: agrees, in fact, all the gods agree, on one condition. Oh, no. And even before the condition, you think back to these other stories of Orpheus and Eurydice and all that... Orpheus has to go through to make his way to even see Eurydice. He doesn't have to charm anyone. He just shows up with public opinion. (laughs) Yep, just gets a lift down to
1: Hades.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what's the condition that Jupiter places on this unlucky husband?
1: This references back to the original Orpheus myth. He's just, he can't look back. He has to guide her back up to Earth without turning around and Taking a look at her. That's the deal. And that's referencing the original Orpheus. It wouldn't be yeah. Orpheus
0: in Eurydice without it. Yep.
1: <laughs> so off they go. And it seems to be going quite well. And then Jupiter suddenly realizes, oh no, hang on a minute. He might actually succeed. This can't happen. So he throws a lightning bolt at them. which he Yeah, because he can. Star- <laughs> yeah, <'cause> he can. <laughs> which startles Orpheus, which it would, who accidentally looks around and Uh, sees his wife
0: oh so he doesn't live up to the condition
1: and she plummets back down to the party Mm -hmm. but by this point jupiter's lost interest
0: (laughs) after all of that (laughs) so pluto's given her up yeah jupiter's lost interest her husband who she was on her way to reconciling with perhaps sort of for the sake of appearances anyway
1: yeah he's lost her so
0: what happens to her
1: so Jupiter hands her over to Bacchus, so she becomes a a lady of wine forevermore.
0: <laughs> Some so more parties for you, yeah.
1: <laughs> It's unclear whether she's happy
0: about it or not. It's very... I think it depends on the production, how, yeah. it's, how it's portrayed. I, certainly the one I saw, she was quite happy to be dancing at, in, because she had just sung that beautiful song in praise yeah. of Bacchus and how much she enjoyed him. And she seemed quite happy in the production I saw. Have you seen it interpreted? I ways? see, well, where she
1: looks, she looks horrified. <gasps> where the, the character playing Bacchus was quite unsavory and she, she certainly was trying to pull away from him. So I think it's open to interpretation maybe. And it's obviously the, she doesn't have any choice either way.
0: No, she doesn't have any choice. It's amazing she's had as much choice and adventure post snake bite as she has yeah, had.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I suppose given that she's dead, she's she's lucky to be in this situation anyway.
0: <laughs> well, no surprise. This final act, this final tableau, the end of the operetta, has a big finish. Rosie, thank you once again for joining me on Opera for Everyone. I couldn't have done it without you.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Oui, je suis convaincu. Malgré ses
3: injustices, c'est ma femme. Et je veux ignorer ses caprices. Puissant roi des... Assez, oh, grâce du boniment, je connais ta demande. Allons-y vivement. Fidèle à ma promesse, à tes désirs propices. D'accord avec Pluton, je te rends Eurydice. Va Jupiter me comble, et Pluton est trop bon. Mais j'y mets cependant une condition, condition express autant qu'inexplicable que tu n'as pas besoin de comprendre, que diable Vers le Styx, gravement, tu vas t'acheminer, en précédant ta femme et sans te retourner. Si... Trop pressé de voir ton aimable Eurydice, tu désobéissais à ce petit caprice. Elle t'échapperait pour toujours, cette fois. Mais ce n'est pas disant L'on élève la voix Allons ah Derrière toi va marcher Eurydice. Ne te retourne pas, j'ai dit, qu'on obéisse
0: for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright, joined by illustrator and opera lover, Rosie Brooks. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because opera is for everyone.